Hello, Carm here, and we're talking about the business side of ADAS, ADAS Calibration, Advanced Driver Assistance Systems. This panel shares investment numbers, training, and we talk about the lack of standards in ADAS Calibration that will need to be addressed. I feel like licensing technicians in this field of work is not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not for big government. I don't don't really support that. But myself, uh, a victim of a car accident just recently, and that system had not been functioning correctly, I wouldn't be sitting here today talking to you. It's amazing uh, the few seconds that that car took control and the airbag deployed and having the training, having been working on diagnosing these vehicles for most of my life, uh, and then watching them go to work and save my life, really put into perspective that the technicians who are working on these cars, whether it be the collision guy to the painter, up to the guy who's calibrating it and test driving it to make sure it's correct. Uh, they need to be vetted. They need to know what they're doing, understand what they're doing, and they need to be qualified. Welcome, automotive aftermarketers, to a Remarkable Results Radio Town Hall Academy. Listen to learn just one thing from today's episode on your journey to remarkable results. Hey, Carm Capriato here, the Aftermarket Podcast Guy, and welcome to Town Hall Academy, episode 138. And I want to thank Jasper Engines and Transmissions for their support of the Town Hall Academy. Now, you know Jasper Engines and Transmissions. Quality and customer service is their number one goal, and their associates take pride in their work, and it shows in the quality drivetrain products that they produce every day. Now, their quality and customer service has kept them growing for 76 years. Go to jasperengines.com for more info. Hey, do you know that every podcast has a show notes page on my website? Now there you'll find my guests' bios, links to their previous episodes, and the episode's key talking points, which can be a meeting outline for you. This podcast show page is at remarkableresults.biz slash A138. If you don't have a free podcast listening app on your phone, hey, here is a quick rundown. Go to your Google Play App Store or your App Store on Apple. Search for Remarkable Results Radio, and when you see it come up, click it and download it. Within a very few minutes, you'll have access to the library of episodes that makes your mobile device come alive with the voices of the aftermarket. Hey, enjoy. Hey, if you've ever thought about getting into the ADAS calibration business, this episode will give you information to help in formulating your decision. With me is David Friend, owner of Mobile Tech and Wilmington Hybrids from Wilmington, North Carolina. David has two locations, an ADAS calibration shop and teaches ADAS calibration in his dedicated training center. Scott Brown is here from Connie and Dick's Service, Claremont, California, and founder of Diag.net. And Mike Reynolds, owner of Mobile Automotive Service Solutions in Charleston, South Carolina, and an automotive instructor at Trident Technical College, who has a big investment in the equipment, targets, OE scan tools, and subscriptions to perform ADAS calibration. The panel will answer these questions for you. Should you consider putting up an ADAS Calibration Center? Do I need training even if I will not do calibrations? Does ADAS save lives? And what about your liability? And how about those standards I mentioned? And is there any benefit if you get in early? This is our first deep dive into the business side of ADAS. ADAS, you'll learn a lot. I don't know about you guys, but I am so happy to be amongst these guys to hear uh, and them talk about a subject that I, it's kind of very dear to my heart. 
we're in a high-tech industry, and we're going to talk high-tech today. And I've had a chance to see them on two ADAS calibration seminars. Even though I'm not a wrench, I had a blast being part of a couple of uh, seminars. And, you know, it just kind of shook my world to see what's going on out there. And, uh, and, and again, uh, the investment and the, the technology and the, the OE specs that you, you have to worry about. So the business of ADAS is what we title this. And, and I'm really looking for, you know, should we, could we, is there an ROI that brings, uh, you know, an investment like ADAS calibration equipment into a normalcy that we would normally look at, you know, a lift or an alignment machine? Is there going to be enough work? Scott, I want to I ask you the first question to get this started. Is the normal general repair shop going to be able to do ADAS calibration? Yeah, I think that uh, a lot of shops are probably going to be disqualified from doing this if they don't have the space. Uh, space requirements are, I think, are the the primary, and we learned that at uh, at Dave's shop uh, a few months ago. Um, but I do want to kind of emphasize that there could be a negative ROI if shops aren't staying up to date and and understanding what challenges are coming through their bay, because they need to find a solution if they're doing services that are affecting how these systems ultimately work. And they're not doing the proper service, uh, they could end up in a, in a, in a pickle uh, down the road. So, like I went to an ADAS, a uh, three-hour, and then one day, I think there was a, a whole-day class, and I went in and out of it because I was, I was doing some other things. Is ADAS training critical even though I may not be doing ADAS calibration? Definitely. And, yes. Uh, so, uh, I would say that shops need to be aware of what, what's going on with the vehicle. I would also like to emphasize the consumer today to get a driver's license. There's really no difference in, in that training. And these systems can cause quite a bit of distraction if they aren't experts in how they work. So I always try to tell technicians, hey, you should be from, start to get familiar with the way these systems work. Try to drive different vehicles, rent different vehicles, explore, have a deep understanding of how these systems behave and operate so that uh, you can deliver proper service. David, you're out there teaching technicians, even though they may not be uh, or create or work in an ADAS calibration center, it's got to be valuable that they learn this. It's imperative to think about how the cars have advanced in the last four years. Let's take uh, advanced driver assist systems kind of to a step forward. It's not just an assistance of driving, I mean, it's a total control of the car. Uh, that's something I really try to drive home to these technicians. They got to understand the SRS units integrated, the ECM, the TCM. I mean, you've got the entire powertrain integrated into these systems. Uh, a good example, the vehicle will auto steer itself uh, to avoid. Uh, it's going to auto brake. So these technicians don't only have to have an understanding of how these safety systems are, are working, but they need to understand how they're integrated and moving forward, how much of the car is going to be combined. Um, I think we're going to look at, you know, uh, what we've coined in the industry is fusion with these vehicles, um, but it's going to be a total car package. So you can't just have a technician who understands how radar works. He also has to understand how an engine works, how brake systems work, how SRS systems work. Um, as these systems get more and more totally integrated, it's going to be imperative these guys get training. If I know and understand ADAS, not as deep as maybe doing the calibrations, but maybe I should learn how to do at least a calibration, uh, been there and done that. I may be a whole lot smarter as a Diag tech, knowing that something in the ADIS may be preventing this. Absolutely. I, I've seen systems, um, automatic emergency braking systems that were um, 
sent to other shops and, and they thought that it was a brake system issue completely. And it ended up being the vehicles in a collision, wasn't properly repaired, wasn't properly calibrated, used parts, you know, things like that. Uh, and it was causing erratic operation. I think Scott actually experienced some issues that may have been diagnosed at the wrong shop as a steering concern when it ended up being the, you know, the car was doing what it was thinking it should have done. And it detected an object and was, it was trying to steer him off the road. Can you share that story, Scott? I first thought I was being set up. You know, I took one of my technicians. We flew 2,500 miles to the other side of the country. And uh, we were encouraged by David and his crew to to rent a high-feature vehicle. So, you know, as we're walking through the, the parking lot at National, we spot a, a Nissan Altima, 2019 Altima. It's got everything on it. And so as we're driving along, you know, we're, we're feeling out how the system's operating. We're, we're gaining some trust. And uh, this vehicle, basically, it... when we were doing some autopilot type stuff, it was following traffic fine. And then there was a point where the traffic kind of sped up, we sped up and then it slowed down and the car did not recognize the traffic in front of us. Later, we found out that this vehicle had been in some sort of service uh, incident. It bent the radar bracket back. So it was looking up in the sky, not not looking straight ahead. That just blew me away that uh, one, the car didn't have a hard fault in it. Each key cycle allows the vehicle to kind of re-enable that system. It's crazy. I mean, to me, it tells me that even the manufacturers haven't got this system or these systems all integrated and, and looking at all the service impact uh, items. And, and it's, uh, it's scary, but we as professionals need to stay on top of all of these things and increase our situational awareness uh, so that we don't get caught with our pants down, so to speak. Well said. So here I'm in this ADES calibration seminar, and uh, we actually calibrated a Toyota's front radar. And I'm watching it all work, and I'm hovering over, and I'm helping measure all, all the stuff. And then we moved the, the front cone, the receptor, six inches back. And we recalibrated the car, and it worked, and it calibrated it. So my question to you all is this. Will it not perform correctly because we didn't have it in the same, the right spot, or is there some forgiveness? One of the challenges that I think we all face as calibrators is how do we know that it is correct? Um, there is a Toyota Sequoia, I believe, that has you place a stand 10.2 millimeters off the center line. So if you looked at these stands and these radar cones, um, let's see if I can pull this up here. This is the. Toyota calibration cone. It's a pretty good size. That's what we used, that that unit. Yep, exactly. So how do we know that we got that cone exactly 10.2 millimeters off the center line? How do we know what is exactly correct? It's, it's kind of challenging. One of the things that I really, really push technicians to do is, is do your best job, obviously, when you're calibrating, but then go test drive your vehicle. Um, there are no published guidelines for exactly how these systems are supposed to operate. So there's a little bit of judgment there as well. Does the vehicle operate correctly? Is it, is it looking at the vehicles in front of it? Can it control the vehicle properly or is it gonna rear end a vehicle? Like, um, I think that was one of the issues that you had, Scott, correct? Yes, that's correct. And a lot of times too, um, with some of these, uh, they'll get a base set point uh, and they'll actually adapt as you drive the vehicle. Um, it could determine a good example is um, some of the dynamics uh, radars uh, that we see, and I see a lot of in the Teslas. You'll drive it, and then it'll give you the measurement degrees, similar to a Chrysler, and you'll make your adjustments. You'll drive it again, and you can watch in the scans will data uh, where it takes that preset, 
and it'll actually make an adaption and then it'll show you what it learned values were. There's a lot that's going on in the back end that the manufacturers don't know either um, that the companies like ZF and Continental have implemented that they haven't really shared with the manufacturers. I mean, they, the manufacturers don't even know what's going on in some of their uh, units. And then they kind of keep this stuff proprietary, keep it held back. You know, we're emerging in this technology. A lot of these patents are still in place. It's prevalent in our industry where everything gets copied pretty quickly now. So, you know, they're, they're keeping this stuff locked up. And I think it's detrimental that the OEMs get involved more in releasing this information to us so we know where we're at liability-wise, uh, whether or not it's functioning correctly. Because a lot of times when we get these vehicles, uh, we don't have a base point to start with. I'm not given a perfectly good vehicle to calibrate. I'm given a vehicle that's been in a collision. It's had five or six hands in there. And we everyone is we get 10 chefs in soup, it doesn't come out right. Um, so, you know, it's detrimental that we know how these systems work. Like Scott mentioned, I encourage my technicians, anytime you get in a car, you got the ability to drive it and it's ADAS equipped, turn the features on learn. What we know is good. We know we can determine what's bad later on. It's a uh, wild west. You know, I hear that all the time. We do wheel alignments. All right. Wheel alignments, you have fundamental measurements on where things are at, how they work. That's really, I think what Dave is talking about. We need to have some of the fundamentals of what in the heck is actually going on. You know, I've been studying photography for a long, long time, and I've been reading a lot of uh, information about machine vision and how these cameras work. And there's two fundamental things that are basically happening when you do a camera calibration. You're doing what's called an intrinsic uh, cal, and so that's characteristics about the camera and the lens uh, to make sure that it understands how the light is diffracting, how the, how the lens is constructed. And then you've got an extrinsic, and that's where you're putting this object, this, this device, a certain amount of distance away from it, from the, uh, the camera and a certain height and all that. And that's the responsibility of the technician to put it right where it belongs. If they move it back a little bit and then do this calibration, well, they just told the system that it's, you know, what, something different than what's actual. And it's making assumptions on that. So it is very, very critical that they follow the, the guidelines on setting this up. But uh, to, to add more to it, I think the more a technician understands about the fundamentals of how these systems operate and what the objectives are, the, the better off we'll all be. And Mike, you're a mobile. Uh, David, you're a mobile. You're called out to do an ADAS calibration or at least troubleshoot something. Is the environment that you need to go in always going to be perfect for to allow you to do a calibration? No, absolutely not. And that is one of the bigger challenges with this. I think as a mobile tech, we learn to be creative. So if you're working in a shop, you have a brick and mortar and you have a space laid out, that that's great. But if you don't have the space, there are some things you can do. You know, the, the biggest key to it is having flat floor space and level floor space. And once you have that, you can kind of get creative. If you're doing a blind spot, you can park the vehicle in, in a place that you have plenty of room. One of the strategies that I, I use fairly often is if I'm going to shoot the radar, I'm going to try and shoot the radar out of a bay door. So I can open that door up and I can move whatever may be interfering with the calibration. But I, I think a lot of shops, they may struggle with that. And especially when you're doing a mobile on the collision side, a lot of these guys don't have a lot of space. Um, or if they do, the floors are, are busted up and there's, you know, there's not a good place to work. So absolutely, that's been a challenge for us. Okay, I have a building. I own. Uniquely, I have my six-bay place and, a, and another one down the road, and I'm not sure what I'm going to use it for. <laughs> Do I need to be the first guy in town to consider ever doing this? Because 
the investment's pretty big. There shouldn't be a ton of these cal- calibration centers because there's not enough work yet. And, and and am I making sense? And my challenge is, is it this going to be a very unique business model inside of our marketplaces? We're not going to see a ton of these places, are we? I don't think so. I think it's a uh, it's a business model that's not long term. Ah, wait a minute. That's the biggest thing you possibly said here right now. <laughs> Stop the presses. Isn't this going to be self-calibration someday? Exactly. Uh, dynamic. The reason why we have ADAS is the human error. We as humans, we make mistakes all the time. And we got to live with those mistakes, right? Uh, whether it's we're not paying attention while we're driving and we're going to rear end somebody. What we've done is we've taken the human element out of driving and we put these advanced driver systems in to detect the cars in front of us, to detect how we're driving bad, that we're not paying attention. On the flip side, when we're doing repair work, uh, there's human error. Um, so we're going to take that away eventually. You know, these are all going to self, self-calibrating. self What you're going to have to do is it's going to be on the collision side to make sure that the vehicle is properly reassembled. And once that happens, it's going to be ticking buttons in a scan tool. Um, and then it's going to come into play where you have to know how the system operated before. And you're going to have to test drive it after to confirm that it's working. I believe that's the future in this. You know, uh, how long it takes, I don't know. I think we've got a good 10, 15 year run. Uh, there's tons and tons of these vehicles that are selling. You know, their standard equipment now for uh, Toyota, for Nissan. So there's tons of these vehicles out there. You've got giant fleets like uh, Enterprise. who've just put these vehicles out into the market. Uh, they come back up for, um, you know, resale. So I, I think the business model is good. I don't know that I'd necessarily bank on doing this 25 years from now, like I would maybe tires, uh, you know, because we're seeing drastic changes everywhere from uh, advanced driver assist systems to the internal combustion engine being extinct here, not, not, in you know the near future, you know I think as a shop owner, I think now's the time if you're going to get into it, get into it. Um, but you can't just dip your toes in. I feel like you got to jump all in. You need to buy the right OEM equipment, OEM targets. It's okay to have aftermarket. Aftermarket works great, but you need to have the OEM. You need to have the OEM procedures and access to this. Um, this initial investment is going to be expensive. You know you're going to come out, uh, but in the end, if you're the, one of the first shops in your area and you can get in good with collision repair windshield guys, uh, and other shops, you know, who end up disconnecting something they didn't realize was a radar. They plug it back up. Now they're panicked and they call the dealer at seven, $800. It's going to be two weeks, you know? Um, so being competitive in your market, I, th- I think it's going to be important. Um, but if you're going to do it, you need to jump in now. Um, I, I don't think, you know, you wait 10 years, you're, you're just going to be wasting money. Great input. I think that, uh, you know, both Dave and, and Mike are, are they're, they're mobile guys. I know a lot of mobile guys out there in the industry and those guys are the frontline guys. I mean, they are doing a lot of uh, service for the collision industry and that's really what I see as the main pipeline of that business. But if you look at some of the, the uh, stats out there, 40% reduction in front end collisions due to some of these safety systems. So what is that doing to the pipeline of service requirements? well into the future. If you look at General Motors, they primarily just have a, a, a kind of a dynamic calibration, right? You do an initialization and then you take it out and drive it and uh, you can actually watch a scan tool uh, progress and, and basically come up with its uh, calibration being set. We will probably see a lot more of that in the future, but in the meantime, we've got this big pipeline of vehicles that will require some level of service. Like Dave said, it may not be a big long-term thing, but if you're in early and you become an expert on this stuff, uh, as as more of this comes into the marketplace, you're going to be the the key uh, player in that uh, that space. 
Thank you, Scott. Uh, a news article that came out uh, August 28th, it said that ADAS market is $39 billion in 2018, and with uh, continuous and new features and more and more vehicles having full-blown ADAS, $189 billion by 2026. Uh, you know, you're right, David, in what you say is this is window of opportunity out there. And Scott, you said this may be just the mobile guys doing it. Mike, you're a mobile guy. Your opinion, obviously, it's job security for you, but your opinion. One of the challenges, I think, with ADAS is we want to have full coverage. I want to be able to show up and calibrate every vehicle out there, and and that is incredibly challenging. That is a ridiculously large investment. Um, And some of these tools you almost can't get your hands on. And when you do get your hands on them, I would be willing to bet that a lot of markets, even large markets, may not be able to make those tools profitable. Um, a lot of these tools, actually, I got a call today for a Jeep Renegade. That is a $4,500 stand that is too large, obviously, to fit in a giant ambulance. And you'd have to lug that around, and I don't see enough of those calls to make it profitable. So we do have aftermarket solutions. But I, I would disagree with uh, not being able to dip your toes in. I, I think that is kind of what we're all doing. I, I don't know that anybody really has full coverage on everything. Um, actually, I'm pretty sure nobody does because I know that there is one old radar calibration tool for a GM that I can't find and nobody I seem to know even owns that tool. So in my opinion, if you're working in a shop and you have, you know, most shops are going to see this uh, on, on the collision side. So if you're working with the collision shop, um, I think it, it might be good to maybe invest in the Honda tooling and Toyota tooling. Um, or you can certainly go with a full aftermarket kit, but you know it's kind of my belief that if you're going to dip your toes in, you can start with Honda and Toyota and be able to do some of these. And I also believe that doing these calibrations is also going to open up doors to collision shop service that you might not otherwise get. Um, and that's kind of what my business focuses on. We, we get a call for an ADAS calibration and it ends up turning into a 134 service and uh, yaw ray sensor calibration or a, a occupancy sensor calibration. So you kind of build on that. But I think the biggest challenge is going to be having full coverage. And it would be great if it were feasible, especially for my business. But, you know, being mobile, we can't do it. And that, that might be something that somebody in a brick and mortar may want to go after. I'm with Luke Hedderscheidt, quality control here at Jasper. So QC for me, Luke, is Everest. It's at the top of the heap. Yeah, uh, we take a lot of pride in our in our quality. And uh, we build a lot of quality into our processes and our machining efforts, uh, machining processes that we use. Um, my role here actually is to go out and look and see what different technologies are out there for different machining operations, um, what kind of additive technology that we can use, any kind of automation and stuff like that. We go out, research, figure out what's going to work best and what's going to produce the best quality products for our customers. What do you like the most about your job? It's actually getting involved in a little bit of everything. I really like that I get to see what what is coming down the pipeline, what our OE's manufacturer is doing, and how can we take some of those processes and bring them in-house to make sure that we have the best quality. Do you love what you do? Absolutely. How long have you been at Jasper? Ten years, straight out of college. The only job you've ever had? The only real job I've ever had. Yeah, I guess you could say that. I worked in a couple of factories while I was in college. Thank you, Luke, a member of the 100% associate-owned company at jasperengines.com. David, do you see dealership groups putting an ADAS calibration center in? As a matter of fact, um, 
I do quite a bit of uh, franchise dealer work here at the shop, um, and I'm, I'm doing it for them because they have either have older buildings that don't really necessitate the area. You know, they don't they don't just have the ability to do it, or they find that their technicians kind of lack the information, which is kind of astounding to me. You know, they they're the OEM, uh, but you know, they, they also find that you know what I can do in 20 minutes, six and 45. And they also don't have to deal with it, you know? So um, I see a lot of that. Like Mike said, I see a lot of collision uh, shops bringing it in. And of course, there's always the extra stuff. Oh, while you have it there, can you do the pre-scan, do the post-scan? And uh, can you, you know, go ahead and do the one, two, three, four, YF? Oh, there's warning lights on. So ADOS is definitely a foot in the door with collision shops. They're using, you know, there's the remote guys out there. I'm not going to name names. Um, I'm not a big fan of any of them. I think they leave a lot on the table. I don't think they do it well enough. And I think they create a lot of liability. Um, they're clicking buttons and, and expecting the guy on the other end to have made all the right measurements, to place all the right targets, and to do a proper visual inspection. And now you're just clicking right through. That creates liability. I think as a technician, the most important part of an ADOS calibration is the visual inspection portion. You have to know the vehicle was repaired correctly. Because as Scott will tell you, that car, you could have never told it was damaged until you popped the hood and actually looked for it, right? All right. You had to know what you were looking for. And that car drove off with no warning lights. And if you are an 80-year-old elderly woman driving down the road and you don't have quite the uh, hand and eye coordination as Scott does holding your coffee, you probably would have killed yourself or someone else. And that's the liability I, these remote I, guys are putting out there. I, I, I got to say that there, there's this whole, whole world out there of Wild West. You know, I, I think Mike will agree with me on that. Yeah, I, I would say when, when we talk about liability, I, I am of the belief that the bigger issue right now in our industry is that people don't know what these components are and not necessarily the collision shops of people in our own on the repair side. We don't know what these components are. I, I frequently get calls. I, I need you to come out and calibrate a parking sensor and it's actually a front radar. The liability there is going to be that these, they send these vehicles out and they don't get calibrated and that's what will cause an accident. Reasonably speaking, I think if you're calibrating and you're doing your, your due diligence and you're, you're aware of what you're calibrating, if you make a mistake, chances are you're going to catch it on a test drive. And if you don't, then you deserve whatever liability you get. But I think that's our biggest challenge is we need to get people to understand what these systems are. And that's one focus of, of my business is, is walking into these collision shops and saying, hey, that's a radar. You see that thing hanging there? When, when you reinstall that, you need to put it back on. And here's why. Here's what can happen if you don't. And that has been incredibly challenging, believe it or not. You, you think it's, it's simple, but our guys just don't quite get it. Um, and that's what we really need to push for. I think the first lawsuit we, we hear is going to be somebody that just refused to calibrate or not refused, but just didn't know any better. Um, I think that's really what we're up against now. I, I run into it all the time, Mike. You know, there's collision shops in my area that just don't, they don't get it. Uh, what's even worse are the windshield guys in my area who don't get it. Uh, there's a couple, they do get it. They definitely, they bring the vehicles to me or they take it to the dealer or they started doing them themselves, you know, but I, I have one guy, he does um, a large, very large dealership network here in uh, North and South Carolina, his company. He told me they do maybe 10,000 windshields in any given time and they don't calibrate. They don't recommend it. They, all these cars drive out. I just stood there and all that this guy was okay with that. And he's going to kill somebody one day. Maybe not directly, but, you know, that, that system's not going to function correctly. Guys, if the insurance company is paying for the windshield, let me assume, wouldn't they want to see on the invoice that it was, the camera was back to normal and working right? As long as they bury their head in the sand deep enough, they don't care. I hate to say that, but, you know, I, I'm not coming here to, to BS anybody. I'm going to give it to you straight. I've had uh, insurance companies say, well, is the light on? 
no, it's not. Or, well, we're not doing anything. There's no code set. It, it doesn't need to be calibrated. I'm like, well, you're wrong. Um, the service information says differently. Well, we're not going to pay for it. Tell the customer they have to pay for it out of pocket. So I tell the customer, and I say, hey, you need to call your insurance company because it suck. Um, and, and leave it at that. You know, I'm not, I'm not a, an attorney. I make sure I note my things. I make sure they sign off on it. Um, and I drive it home to them. They need to call their insurance company. This needs to be done. You know, that just described the wild, wild west to me. If a radar camera is removed and it's not calibrated and the vehicle's in an accident, the insurance company's not the one that gets sued. It's the repair shop that serves that component. It's the glass guy. While I've heard that insurance companies are pushing for calibrations, I absolutely haven't seen them. But I also haven't gotten any pushback on calibration. If we say it needs calibrated, we just have to print it in service information. Um, we don't typically use position statements. We look in the service info. We look at R&R procedure for the radar, and at the end of the procedure, it says it needs calibrated. Um, we don't get any pushback, but we certainly aren't seeing the insurance companies giving uh, any, any hassle to the body shops if they're not calibrated. I, th- I think um, it's, it's a regional thing. I, I think it varies in markets. My experience in my market, it, it's it's terrible. Mike, I think you're in a better market for that. But I, I hear guys out um, in Northern California. I had a phone call yesterday from um, a gentleman in his calibration center out there. He was stressing to me that he wanted to, to develop some sort of pact all over the country where we get these insurance companies together every so often and just make sure that they understand, hey, you know, this is how it is. This is what the OEMs recommend. Uh, this is what needs to be done on these certain uh, repairs. You know, um, the OEMs kind of made it sticky because you can look at certain years and they say the word required. Uh, and then sometimes they say recommended. And it'll be the exact same type radar, uh, exact same type system. But that wording right there, if it's in that service information, they say, no, we're not going to do it. You know, it has to say it has to be required. And I think that's an issue too. Again, I, I run into that more, I, I feel like, than most guys I know, but I know it's prevalent all over the country. One of the things I'd like to uh, chime in on, I think the, the key word here that's missing uh, that I've been harping on for, for many, many years now is standard, right? We, we don't really have a standard. And I think these systems are becoming more and more mission critical and therefore are going to drive a standard. Um, I know Mike and I were just at a, at a meeting um, in Detroit a couple of weeks ago, uh, first ever for ASE uh, certification group, looking at the ADAS and trying to determine where do we need to go, uh, you know, as an industry. And I keep pushing towards how the vehicles are repaired or how aircraft is, are repaired, right? So they are done to a specific standard. Uh, there's certain requirements requirements for the repair, but also requirements for the, the technician. Uh, minimum standards on you know, what their skill set is and what their knowledge is. And I think if we get everybody on board to understand how critical these are, we're all going to be able to work together and, and do the right thing. I'm um, scared of the things you guys are saying. I'm not surprised at some of the things you guys are saying. I'm worried <laughs> about some of the things you guys are saying. And the whole thing, you know, Scott just brought this up. Where's the standard? And how do we vet techs and get them certified, David? Have you, you know, you're you're doing all of this. You gotta, you've you've got to have some kind of thought. Uh, train, train, train. Uh, these guys need training. I don't know the answer. You know, I know certain states require licensing for shops. I feel like licensing technicians in this field of work is not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not for big government. I don't don't really support that, but myself, uh, a victim of a car accident just recently, and that system had not been functioning correctly, I wouldn't be sitting here today talking to you. 
it's amazing uh, the few seconds that that car took control and the airbag deployed and having the training, having been working on diagnosing these vehicles for most of my life uh, and then watching them go to work and save my life really put into perspective that the technicians who are working on these cars, whether it be the collision guy to the painter up to the guy who's calibrating it and test driving it to make sure it's correct. Uh, they need to be vetted. They need to know what they're doing, understand what they're doing, and they need to be qualified, not just certified. Anyone can get certified. We need qualified guys. Um, there needs to be a, a push in our country to license technicians. I hate to say it. you know. Um, I think the times of uh, working on your granddad's uh, pickup truck in the driveway are gone. You know, these systems are so far advanced, you have to have equipment that's specialized to work on them. And, um, you know, that, that's hard to say for me because I grew up in the South where, you know, everybody, you know, went to work for their grandfather's garage. And those times are just over, unfortunately. The automobile is, has gone from, uh, you know, a passion and, and a weekend drive to um, it's a vessel now, you know. It's, um, it's more of a, you, you're a passenger in it, you know, instead of the driver. And so we really need to push for this. And, and uh, I don't know the answer to it. I think ASC is, is uh, definitely the way to go. Uh, unfortunately, I couldn't make that conference. I, I literally landed in the airport at uh, 2.45. I had no time to get there. My flights were just so messed up that day. But um, I think ASC is, is one route to go. You know, I, I think they do a great job uh, given their resources to, to keep technicians on track and getting qualified. It's a way for us in our industry you know, and there's always the argument for it, uh, whether or not it is a good one or not. But I feel it is. You know, it gives us a, a gauge for our customers so that they know where we're at qualification level. And, you know, it also allows shops to gauge technicians as they come in. You know, if you've taken ASC testing, uh, it's, there's never a wrong answer. There's the best answer. And the best answer always comes from having the experience hands-on working. You are our poster child for that because you were in an accident. It saved your life. Had that vehicle been in a small accident, someone worked on it who wasn't qualified, made a mistake in a in calibration, the vehicle's out there out of spec, yet no light on, you have a risk. No one knows what it may be, but for sure. I don't want to find out. No, you'd want to get in that plane knowing that a certified technician worked on that plane, right, Scott? And you'd want to get in that ADAS equipped vehicle knowing that a certified technician uh, put it, you know, and, and continues to monitor that it is in decent shape. Wow. Um, heavy, heavy stuff. Well, now it goes back to this whole thing. Scott, you brought it up earlier. Go buy a car today, and I've asked a few people about buying brand new cars. Yeah, they talked to me about this beautiful center stack, the info uh, entertainment system, and they sent me on my way. Years past, I remember buying a car, you know, an hour and a half later, they were showing me all this stuff on the car. It's an opportunity, I believe, that we can hold some classes and say, you know, here's some high-tech training for your high-tech car. And Scott, is anyone here doing that? I know that uh, I see an opportunity. Um, I, in fact, I'm interviewing customers all the time and asking them. A lot of them are clueless as to what these systems actually do. I had one guy tell me uh, that he refuses to use his cruise control anymore. And I asked him why. And he says, well, there's too much traffic out on the road. And I'm always having to disengage it. And I go, well, you know, the system is going to adapt to it, to adapt to that traffic. And he said, it does, you know, so you know, owners do not typically read that owner's manual, which is uh, a ton, has a ton of really valuable information. And I think that uh, oh, I had a recent uh, conversation with a gentleman, uh, his name is Dirk, 
uh, Fuchs from uh, ZF, who's a trainer, and he's he, he's from uh, Germany. And he was telling me that the, the drivers have to take 40 hours of training um, to get their driver's license. And a great deal of it now is covering these advanced driver assistance systems so that that driver is like a pilot. They understand the system. They know they need to recognize when they're not behaving properly and when not to rely on them and, and what have you. We are missing that here. Uh, <laughs> it's unfortunate. We also have the cars now where you don't have to do a parallel park. You know, you pull the car up and you hit a button and the par car parks itself. So, um, you know, we're removing the skill set from the, the driver. But until those, those uh, the steering wheel and the brake pedals then are gone, um, those drivers still need to have a, a good skill set. Any training going on, David, at your place? We have a session for ADAS coming up uh, in November, I believe it's the 16th and 17th. I do still have availability in that class. Are you talking about technicians or the consumer? That's for technicians. Um, as far as consumers, years ago, I did uh, some hybrid uh, open house. You know, we um, invited them to bring their hybrid cars and ask us questions about it. I have been tooling the idea around of doing this with ADAS systems. I, I still see the push, like Scott says, you know, a lot of these customers don't like the features. Things move slower down here. That's why I live here. I love the South. But there's there's not a lot of people who enjoy these systems around here. I, I hear it all the time. I, I keep it turned off. Uh, I had a customer came in one time after one of my technicians had test driven it. Of course, he had to activate everything to make sure it was working correctly. He left it on, and the customer called us up immediately. My car's beeping at me. It's vibrating. It's doing this. It's steering itself. Uh, you know, I want my money back. Brought it back to the shop. I went out there. Uh, explain to her how the system was working, and I turned it off for her. I do plan on doing it, but uh, you know, customer education is critical. You know, um, they got to understand what they're driving. They got to understand how integrated the vehicle is. So many things going through my mind. Uh, can I ask Mike a very personal question? And you don't have to answer this if you don't want. What do you think you have invested in ADAS calibration equipment? Well, if you are including factory scan tools, um, we're probably. I would guess. Well over $75,000, give or take. Um, but that's a lot of factory tooling and a lot of equipment. Um, that, that's not really necessary. I think you can get into a couple manufacturers and spend a considerable amount less. Um, some of the big, and, and a, lot of, a lot of that expense is going to be subscription as well. It adds up quickly. Um, but I would, I would kind of dare to say that some of the OEM tooling is a lot less uh, expensive than what I think a lot of people think it is. David, if I came to you and said, listen, I'm going to send my, my three techs down to training at your place and I want to do an ADAS calibration center, can you set me all up? What would my investment be? Well, I would want to know your market first. You have to know your market before you start buying tooling equipment. You know, to get into Toyota, Honda, Nissan, Ford, GM, and um, most of, I say most of, Chrysler, your initial cost with the factory uh, scan tool using a J2534 box uh, and with your subscriptions, I mean, you're going to be well under, you know, 25,000. But then when you get into the Hyundai Kia side, you know, it starts to rack up then. I mean, they've got some pretty expensive tooling. You get into Volkswagen Audi, you're talking maybe 28,000 um, at last uh, last research, you know. that. And what would a calibration cost? I mean, is there a menu on that? You know, if I was going to do a front radar, what would uh, you charge me three, four, five hundred bucks? Where are we? 
insurance kind of have some standard pricing, it seems like, in, in certain markets. Uh, here in, in my market, you know, the price is different from, uh, you know, for collision warning or camera calibration to, to the radar calibration. Uh, we charge line by line. You know, we're getting, you know, two two fifty for the cameras. Um, we're getting uh, 150 185 for radar. A blind spot monitoring, maybe three three fifty. Um, you know, the, my market is driven by the dealerships here. And so, you know, for me to be competitive, um, I've got to turn it around quicker, make sure it's right, obviously make sure it's safe, um, but I have to be competitive in the pricing. Otherwise, the insurance company is going to say, you know what, just take it to the dealer. We often ask that question in class as part of the discussion. We say, hey, so what are you guys charging? And, you know, I, I know guys who can only get, um, you know, 85 for a calibration in certain markets. Um, some guys are getting 500, 700. Right now, because there is no standard, I tell shops, charge as much as you can because you can set the standard in your market and you'll have the price locked up where it's profitable for you. Unfortunately, you know, my market dealers drive the pricing. So, Thank you. Uh, let's try to bring this to a conclusion. And, and, and here's a couple of my major takeaways. And I would love you all to give me a, your final word or challenge my thinking here. Number one, my takeaway is get your butt in a seat and get training, no matter if you're going to do ADAS calibration or not, because you've got to appreciate, know, respect the technology. Number two, be very, very careful that you're going to build an ADAS calibration center if the marketplace won't support it. And has anyone here done any paperwork, done any yellow page math on what an ROI could be depending on the population size and if there's any other ADAS calibration centers in town and or if you were going to build a standalone one, how many mobiles are out there that really own a high piece of the market right now. Those are my hanging thoughts. If you guys can help me bring them down to a conclusion, I'd love it. I'll start with you, Scott. I think, uh, and Dave just mentioned it at the very end of his uh, his statement there, is the standard, right? So if we begin uh, down that path to the, uh, the bottom, uh, nobody's going to win, right? So um, understanding your market, but two, if, if you're going to let the market dictate your pricing and the rest of the players aren't aren't really where they belong. You're, you're going to lose. But what I would emphasize, you know, like Dave said, training is is key. Start looking at service information. I mean, go go into all data or Mitchell or whatever, and you know, look at a brand new vehicle. Look at what's required. Do a search for camera. Look at the requirements. If you start pinning down all the steps that are required to do a calibration, and then to do a functional check after you're done to validate that you went through all those steps. You've, you've clocked up a lot of time there. And again, you're going to have to di- uh, document everything along the way so that you can say that you did it. And I always tell people, hey, look at look at how an airframe log is or a power, powertrain log is on an aircraft. And they say that they did all these steps. They, they verified there is no open uh, recalls and all that. Calibrations are all up to date. Everything's operating as designed at this time. So that's my recommendation. And things are always changing. So you have to be ready to adopt and improvise. One other thing I think that um, needs to be established here is that it's not just calibrating. There's a lot of diagnostic here. Because like Dave said, um, get a car that's been in a collision. Maybe they they didn't put the wiring back together. The wiring's been... uh, chewed up or broken or what have you. Connectors have been tugged out of their their terminals. You've got to be able to diagnose those things because when it comes down to calibration, that part might be pretty easy, but to get everything working together, that's where the challenge is. Wonderful. Mike, you're next. 
I would definitely say for anybody interested in getting into calibrations, I, I definitely agree with David. I think now is the time. Uh, I, I will say my business focuses on collision shops. And when I started, I would I would dare to say that about 80% of the calibrations or vehicles that should have been calibrated weren't being calibrated. It's scary that he what he just said, uh, the, the, the number of vehicles that aren't calibrated. Are you kidding me? You mean there's there's hardware on the road today that's not calibrated, David? Uh, I see it all the time. You know, I see erratic brake operation, um, phantom warning lights, you know, comes on one day, not on the next. Uh, you know, systems disable themselves with no codes in it. Um, you couldn't find out it's installed correct, incorrectly. Had they had attempted a calibration, they would have detected that it wasn't installed correctly. Um, good example, um, there's a windshield company here in, in North Carolina, not sure where they're located. They constantly replace windshields for a big fleet. And they go to the dealership for warning lights, no codes. And the dealer always says it's the glass or the camera needs to be replaced. And so they ended up with 12 of these cars and it was the same installer. And so they started bringing them to me. We, we quickly figured out what it was. They weren't mounting the camera incorrectly, but no one was attempting to do the calibration. Um, had they attempted the calibration or thrown on warning lights. And then at that point, you would have had to affix the vehicle to get the warning lights out because it wouldn't accept the calibration. So that's why the camera's moved. The center line has changed, whether it's one millimeter or, uh, you know, a centimeter, it's changed and it needs to be calibrated. There was a study in 2017 that was uh, questioning uh, how many of the vehicles actually were calibrated. And it was less than 1% of vehicles that required a calibration were actually uh, calibrated at the time. I believe that number is a lot higher. Uh, A lot of guys have stepped up their campaigns and educating uh, collision shops, educating the windshield uh, industry, which has been difficult. I think the wind- windshield industry and the collision industries are struggling with these systems. Their industries haven't changed much in, in 20 years. You know, uh, what was it? Just unglue some trim and, and pop in a piece of glass. You hung the rearview mirror up where it was supposed to go and you shook your customer's hand. You know, now you've got, uh, you know, rain sensors, you've got, got your camera mounted up there, you've got the compass. And all that stuff has to come off. It has to be properly put on. You know, the, a lot of windshield guys don't even know that they have to calibrate the compass once it's dis, uh, disconnected. For these guys, it's been a shock. And a lot of these guys are scrambling. Um, some of these guys were really sharp. And when this stuff started coming about, they jumped right in. And they own their markets when it comes to windshields now. You know, the collision industry is still struggling. They've, they've struggled now with uh, the pre- and post-scan stuff. A lot of them still struggle with it. You know, now you're you know, ADAS systems in here that need to be calibrated. I think those two industries are the ones that are struggling the most. You know, we've, we've had it fortunate with the repair side. We always change. Everything changes for us every three to four years. So we're used to these new features coming out. You know, we, we've looked at, we've watched, you know, one, um, one ABS sensor. Now we have four, you know, and then we got y'all sensor. You know, these uh, ABS systems have advanced so much in the last uh, few years um, to be integrated into these safety features. We, we just adapt quicker in the repair industry side than I say the collision guys do. Um, but I'm not, I'm not bad-mouthing the collision industry and bad-mouthing the windshield industry. It's just how it is for these guys. But there's a lot of sharp ones out there who jumped right in when this stuff came about. And they're in their markets. You know, um, They don't call mobile guys. They own the factory equipment. They own the factory cancels because they understand the value of having it all in-house and having properly trained technicians um, being profitable. A great summary, which is is leading me to a question that I have. (laughs) I do this very rarely and on occasion that I want to have you hanging out here. So if there are so few vehicles out there, as you say, it's getting better, that aren't calibrated, where's the ADAS light on the dash that says, just want you to know it's not working right? 
the OEMs haven't completely in, implemented um, the ability to know whether or not the sensor was removed if it wasn't disconnected. We're learning we're going to get better because if we're going to self-calibrate someday, it's got to be smarter than it is, right? Right. And, and there are some systems out there today in use, you know, in, in some of your higher end Europeans. Um, they know when something's been moved, it'll constantly check for that center line. And when it detects it's not there, it'll throw up a code saying, you know, I'm far too far out of spec. Uh, that code for that Nissan that it threw in there. Um, but then, like Scott said, you know, a key cycle might clear it out and then it just goes back into relearning itself, you know. Um, and the reason for that is, you know, uh, there's so many factors that, you know, technicians um, don't take into consideration like ice, dirt, debris. I'll give you a good example. Just went to Tacoma, Washington. I uh, had a, a Kia rental. As I'm climbing up the mountain, the forward collision warning system uh, disabled itself. It set a code and warning and it told me that it was disabled because the radar uh, was obstructed. Um, sure enough, I got out and there's mud and dirt right over the sensor. So, you know, these systems are uh, getting more and more advanced. They'll be able to detect that there's their own problems. And I think eventually they'll know whether or not it needs a calibration. Um, but that, that's going to be, you know, a few years from now, you know, before we see those systems completely implemented. But you got to look, every single Toyota that's produced now and sold in North America is equipped standard with these features. That is a lot of vehicles. Toyota is one of the number one manufacturers in the country, in the world. They're producing more of these advanced driver-assisted cars than almost anybody right now. And Nissan, again, theirs are all standard equipment. The ignorance that we have in the shop for cutting corners to try to increase profitability, uh, that needs to go out the window. You're putting lives at risk, period. Don't be a hack. I'm going to offer you an amen on that. Hey, guys, thank you. Thank you so much for all that you do in the industry. David Friend, Scott Brown, Mike Reynolds, thank you so much for being here in a discussion on the business side of ADAS. It's been an honor. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for being on board to listen and learn from the premier automotive aftermarket podcast. Until next time.